Chapter Fifteen of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Fifteen. The Gorbals Diehards go into action. We left Mister McCunn, full of aches but desperately resolute in spirit, hobbling by the Ochenlochen road into the village of Dalquarter. His goal was Mrs. Moran's hen-house, which was Thomas Yanni's post de commandement. The rain had come on again, and though in other weather there would have been a slow twilight, already the shadow of night had the world in its grip. The sea, even from the high ground, was invisible, and all to westward and windward was a ragged screen of dark cloud. It was foul weather for foul deeds. Thomas Yanni was not in the hen-house, but in Mrs. Moran's kitchen, and with him were the pug-faced boy known as Old Bill, and the sturdy figure of Peter Patterson. But the floor was held by the hostess. She still wore her big boots, her petticoats were still kilted, and round her venerable head in lieu of a bonnet was drawn a tartan shawl. "'Here, Dixon, but I'm blithe to see ye. And, pure man, ye've been sair mishandled. This is the awfulest Sabbath day that ever you and me pit in. I hope it'll be forgiven us. Where's the young lady?' Dougal was saying she was in the house with Sir Archibald and the men from the mains. "'Where's me?' Mrs. Moran keened. "'And what kind of place is yon for her? They laddies tell me there's boatfuls of scoundrels landed at the Garple Fit. They'll try the old tar, but they'll no wait there when they find it tomb. And they'll be inside the hoose in a jiffy, and away with the pure lassie. Sirs, it mona be. He'll live into the police, but in my days I never kenned the police in time. We mon be up and dane ourselves.' "'Oh, if I could get a hold of that red-headed Dougal!' As she spoke, there came on the wind the dull reverberation of an explosion. "'Keep us, what's that?' she cried. "'It's dinimit,' said Peter Patterson. "'That's the end of the old tower,' observed Thomas Yowney in his quiet, even voice. "'And it's likely the end of the man-heritage.' "'Lord Peteous!' the old woman wailed. "'And us standing here like stookies and no lifting a hand?' "'Away be ye, laddies, and day something. "'Away you too, Dixon, or I'll take the rope myself.' "'I've got orders,' said the chief of staff, "'no to move till the situation's clear. "'Napoleon's up at the tower, and Jakey in the policies. "'I'm in wait on their reports.' For a moment Mrs. Moran's attention was distracted by Dixon, who suddenly felt very faint, and sat down heavily on a kitchen chair. "'Man, ye're as white as a dish-clout,' she exclaimed with compunction. "'You're fair wore out, and you'll have had nae meat since your breakfast. "'See, and I'll get you a cup of tea.' She proved to be in the right, for as soon as Dixon had swallowed some mouthfuls of her strong, scalding brew, the colour came back to his cheeks, and he announced that he felt better. "'Ye'll fortify it with a dram,' she told him, and produced a black bottle from her cupboard. "'My father a said that good whisky and hot tea keep at the doctor's gig with the close.' The back door opened, and Napoleon entered, his thin shanks blue with cold. He saluted and made his report in a voice shrill with excitement. "'The tar has fallen! They've blown in the big door, and the feck of them's inside!' "'And Mr. Heritage?' was Dixon's anxious inquiry. "'When I last saw him, he was up at a windy shooting. I think he's gotten onto the roof. I wouldn't have wondered but the place is on fire.' "'Here, this is awful!' Dixon groaned. "'We can't let Mr. Heritage be killed that way.' "'What strength is the enemy?' "'I counted twenty-seven, and the stragglers coming up from the boats.' "'And there's me and you five laddies here, and Dougal and the others shut up in the house.' 
he stopped in sheer despair. It was a fix from which the most enlightened business mind showed no escape. Prudence, inventiveness were no longer in question, only some desperate course of violence. "'We must create a diversion,' he said. "'I'm for the tower, and you laddies must come with me. We'll maybe see a chance. Oh, but I wish I had my wee pistol.' "'If you go in there, Dixon, I'm coming with ye,' Mrs. Moran announced. Her words revealed to Dixon the preposterousness of the whole situation, and for all his anxiety he laughed. Five laddies, a middle-aged man and an old wife,' he cried. "'Dot, it's pretty hopeless. It's like the thing in the Bible about the weak things of the world trying to confound the strong.' "'The Bible's wiz richt,' Mrs. Moran answered dryly. "'Come on, for there's no time to lose.' The door opened again to admit the figure of wee Jakey. There were no tears in his eyes, and his face was very white. "'They're all around the house,' he croaked. "'I was up a tree falling at the verandy and seen them. "'The lassie ran out and cried on them from the top of the brae, "'and they all turned and hunted her berk. "'Gosh, but it was a near thing. "'I seen the captain slim in the wall, "'and a muckle man took the lassie and flung her up the ladder. "'They got inside just in time and steak at the door, "'and now the whole pack is roaring round the hoose seeking a road in. "'They'll not be long over the job, neither.' "'What about Mr. Heritage?' Oh, there's no heeding about him any more. The old tar's bleasing. Worse and worse, said Dixon. If the police don't come in the next ten minutes, they'll be away with the princess. They've beaten all Dougal's plans, and it's a straight fight with odds of six to one. It's not possible. Mrs. Moran, for the first time, seemed to lose hope. Eh, the pure lassie, she wailed, and sinking on a chair, covered her face with her shawl. Laddies, can you not think of a plan? asked Dixon, his voice flat with despair. Then Thomas Yowney spoke. So far he had been silent, but under his tangled thatch of hair his mind had been busy. Jakey's report seemed to bring him to a decision. "'It's key dark,' he said, "'and it's getting darker.' There was that in his voice which promised something, and Dixon listened. "'The enemy's mostly foreigners, but Dobson's there, and I think he's the kind of guide to them. Dobson's fear of the police, and if we can terrify Dobson, he'll terrify the rest.' "'Aye, but where are the police?' "'They're not here yet, but they're coming. "'The fear of them is aye in Dobson's mind. "'If he thinks the police has arrived, he'll put the wind up the lot. "'We mun be the police.' "'Dixon could only stare while the chief of staff unfolded his scheme. "'I do not know to whom the muse of history will give the credit of the tactics of infiltration, "'whether to Ludendorff or von Houtier or some other proud captain of Germany, or to Foch.' who revised and perfected them. But I know that the same notion was at this moment of crisis conceived by Thomas Yowney, whom no parents acknowledged, who slept usually in a coal-cellar, and who had picked up his education among Gorbal's closes and along the wharves of Clyde. "'It's getting dark,' he said, "'and the enemy are that busy trying to break into the hoose that they'll no be thinking of their rear. The five of us diehards is grand at dodging and keeping out of sight, and what hinders us to get in among them?' so that they'll hear us but never see us. We're used to the ways of the police, and can imitate them fine. For by we've all got our whistles, which are the same as a bobby's burl, and old Bill and Peter are grand at copying a man's voice. Since the captain is shut up in the hoose, the command falls to me, and that's my plan. With a piece of chalk he drew on the kitchen floor a rough sketch of the environs of Huntingtower. Peter Patterson was to move from the shrubberies beyond the veranda, Napoleon from the stables, old Bill from the tower, 
while we, Jakey, and Thomas himself were to advance Avziv from the Garple foot, so that the enemy might fear for his communications. "'As soon as one of ye gets into position, he's to give the patrol cry, and when each of ye has heard five cries, he's to advance. Begin burling and roaring afore ye get among them, and keep it up till ye're at the hoose wall. If they've gotten inside, in ye go after them. I trust each die-hard to use his judgment, and above all to keep out of sight, and no let himself be grip it. The plan, like all great tactics, was simple, and no sooner was it expounded than it was put into action. The die-hards faded out of the kitchen like fog-wreaths, and Dixon and Mrs. Moran were left looking at each other. They did not look long. The bare feet of wee Jakey had not crossed the threshold fifty seconds before they were followed by Mrs. Moran's out-of-doors boots and Dixon's tackets. Arm in arm, the two hobbled down the back path behind the village which led to the South Lodge. The gate was unlocked, for the warder was busy elsewhere, and they hastened up the avenue. Far off, Dixon thought he saw shapes fleeting across the park, which he took to be the shock troops of his own side, and he seemed to hear snatches of song. Jakey was giving tongue, and this was what he sang. Proletarians, arise! Wave the red flag to the skies! Heed nae mair the fat man's lees, stap them doon his throat. Knock to loss except our chains, we maun drain o'er dearest veins. All the world shall be our gains. But he tripped over a rabbit wire, and thereafter conserved his breath. The wind was so loud that no sound reached them from the house, which blank and immense now loomed before them. Dixon's ears were alert for the noise of shots, or the dull crash of bombs, Hearing nothing, he feared the worst, and hurried Mrs. Moran at a pace which endangered her life. He had no fear for himself, arguing that his foes were seeking higher game, and judging, too, that the main battle must be round the veranda at the other end. The two passed the shrubbery where the road forked, one path running to the back door and one to the stables. They took the latter, and presently came out on downs, with the ravine of the garpel on their left, the stables in front, and on the right the hollow of a formal garden running along the west side of house. The gale was so fierce, now that they had no windbreak between them and the ocean, that Mrs. Moran could wrestle with it no longer, and found shelter in the lee of a clump of rhododendrons. Darkness had all but fallen, and the house was a black shadow against the dusky sky, while a confused greyness marked the sea. The old tower showed a tooth of masonry. There was no glow from it, so the fire which Jakey had reported must have died down. A warp cried loudly, and very eerily, then another. The bird stirred up Mrs. Moran. "'That's the laddie's patrol!' she gasped. "'Count the cries, Dixon!' Another bird wailed, this time very near. Then there was perhaps three minutes' silence, till a fainter weeple came from the direction of the tower. Four, said Dixon, but he waited in vain on the fifth. He had not the acute hearing of the boys, and could not catch the faint echo of Peter Patterson's single beyond the veranda. The next he heard was a shrill whistle cutting into the wind, and then others in rapid succession from different quarters, and something which might have been the hoarse shouting of angry men. The Gorbals' diehards had gone into action. Dull prose is no medium to tell of that wild adventure. The sober sequence of the military historian is out of place in recording deeds that knew not sequence or sobriety. Were I a bard, I would cast this tale in excited verse, with a lilt which would catch the speed of the reality. I would sing of Napoleon, 
not unworthy of his great namesake, who penetrated to the very window of the lady's bedroom, where the framework had been driven in and men were pouring through, of how there he made such pandemonium with his whistle that men tumbled back and ran about blindly seeking for guidance, of how, in the long run, his pugnacity mastered him, so that he engaged in combat with an unknown figure, and the two rolled into what had once been a fountain. I would hymn Peter Patterson, who across tracts of darkness engaged old Bill in a conversation which would have done no discredit to a Gallagate policeman. He pretended to be making reports and seeking orders. "'We've gotten three of the devils, sir. What do we do with them?' he shouted. And back would come the reply in a slightly more genteel voice. "'Fall them to the rear. Tampson has charge of the prisoners.' Or it would be, "'They've gotten pistols, sir. What's the orders?' And the answer would be, "'Stick to your battens. The guns are posted on the nose, so we needn't hurry.' And over all the din there would be a perpetual whistling and a yelling of, "'Hands up!' I would sing, too, of wee Jakey, who was having the red-letter hour of his life. His fragile form moved like a lizard in places where no mortal could be expected, and he varied his duties with impish assaults upon the persons of such as came in his way. His whistle blew in a man's ear one second, and the next yards away. Sometimes he was moved to song, and unearthly fragments of class-conscious a-wee, or proletarians arise, mingled with the din like the cry of seagulls in a storm. He saw a bright light flare up within the house, which warned him not to enter, but he got as far as the garden-room, in whose dark corners he made havoc. Indeed, he was almost too successful, for he created panic where he went, and one or two fired blindly at the quarter where he had last been heard. These shots were followed by frenzied prohibitions from Spidal, and were not repeated. Presently he felt that aimless surge of men that is the prelude to flight, and heard Dobson's great voice roaring in the hall. Convinced that the crisis had come, he made his way outside, prepared to harass the rear of any retirement. Tears now flowed down his face, and he could not have spoken for sobs, but he had never been so happy. But chiefly would I celebrate Thomas Yowney, for it was he who brought fear into the heart of Dobson. He had a voice of singular compass, and from the veranda he made it echo round the house. The efforts of old Bill and Peter Patterson had been skilful indeed, but those of Thomas Yowney were deadly. To some leader beyond he shouted news. "'Robinson's just about finished with his lot, and then he'll get the boats.' A furious charge upset him, and for a moment he thought that he'd been discovered. But it was only Dobson rushing to Leon, who was leading the men in the doorway. Thomas fled to the far end of the veranda, and again lifted up his voice. "'All foreigners!' he shouted, except the man Dobson. "'Aye, aye, got Loudon. Well done!' It must have been this last performance which broke Dobson's nerve, and convinced him that the one hope lay in a rapid retreat to the Garplefoot. There was a tumbling of men in the doorway, a muttering of strange tongues, and the vision of the innkeeper shouting to Leon and Spidal. For a second he was seen in the faint reflection that the light in the hall cast as far as the veranda, a wild figure urging the retreat with a pistol clapped to the head of those who were too confused by the hurricane of events to grasp the situation. Some of them dropped over the wall, but most huddled like sheep through the door on the west side, a jumble of struggling, panic-stricken mortality. Thomas Yanni staggered at the success of his tactics, yet kept his head and did his utmost to confuse the retreat, and the triumphant shouts and whistles of the other diehards 
showed that they were not unmindful of this final duty. The veranda was empty, and he was just about to enter the house, when through the west door came a figure, breathing hard and bent apparently on the same errand. Thomas prepared for battle, determined that no straggler of the enemy should now wrest from him victory. But as the figure came into the faint glow of the doorway, he recognised it as heritage, and at the same moment he heard something which made his tense nerves relax. Away on the right came sounds, a thud of galloping horses on grass, and the jingle of bridle reins, and the voices of men. It was the real thing at last. It is a sad commentary on his career, but now, for the first time in his brief existence, Thomas Yowney felt charitably disposed towards the police. The poet, since we left him blaspheming on the roof of the tower, had been having a crowded hour of most inglorious life. He had started to descend at a furious pace, and his first misadventure was that he stumbled and dropped Dixon's pistol over the parapet. He tried to mark where it had fallen in the gloom below, and this lost him precious minutes. When he slithered through the trap into the attic room, where he had tried to hold up the attack, he discovered that it was full of smoke, which sought in vain to escape by the narrow window. Volumes of it were pouring up the stairs, and when he attempted to descend he found himself choked and blinded. He rushed, gasping, to the window, filled his lungs with fresh air, and tried again. But he got no further than the first turn, from which he could see through the cloud red tongues of flame in the ground-room. This was solemn indeed, so he sought another way out. He got on the roof, for he remembered a chimney-stack cloaked with ivy, which was built straight from the ground, and he thought he might climb down it. He found the chimney and began the descent, confidently, for he had once borne a good reputation at the Monten Vert and Cortina. At first all went well, for stones stuck out at decent intervals like the rungs of a ladder, and roots of ivy supplemented their deficiencies. But presently he came to a place where the masonry had crumbled into a cave, and left a gap some twenty feet high. Below it he could dimly see a thick mass of ivy which would enable him to cover the further forty feet to the ground, but at that cave he stuck most finally. All round the lime and stone had lapsed into debris, and he could find no safe foothold. Where still the block on which he relied proved loose, and only by a dangerous traverse did he avert disaster. There he hung for a minute or two with a cold void in his stomach. He had always distrusted the handiwork of man as a place to scramble on, and now he was planted in the dark on a decomposing wall with an excellent chance of breaking his neck, and with the most urgent need for haste. He could see the windows of the house, and since he was sheltered from the gale, he could hear the faint sound of blows on woodwork. There was clearly the devil to pay there, and yet here he was helplessly stuck. Setting his teeth he started to ascend again, better the far than this cold, breakneck emptiness. It took him the better part of half an hour to get back, and he passed through many moments of acute fear. Footholds which had seemed secure enough in this descent now proved impossible, and more than once he had his heart in his mouth when a rotten ivy-stump or a wedge of stone gave in his hands and dropped dully into the pit of the night, leaving him crazily spread-eagled. When at last he reached to the top, he rolled on his back and felt very sick. Then, as he realised his safety, his impatience revived. At all costs he would force his way out, that he should be grilled like a herring. The smoke was less thick in the attic, 
and, with his handkerchief wet with the rain and bound across his mouth, he made a dash for the ground-room. It was as hot as a furnace, for everything inflammable in it seemed to have caught fire, and the lumber glowed in piles of hot ashes. But the floor and walls were stone, and only the blazing jams of the door stood between him and the outer air. He had burned himself considerably as he stumbled downwards, and the pain drove him to a wild leap through the broken arch, where he miscalculated the distance, charred his shins, and brought down a red-hot fragment of the lintel on his head. But the thing was done, and a minute later he was rolling like a dog in the wet bracken to cool his burns and put out various smouldering patches on his raiment. Then he started running for the house, but, confused by the darkness, he bore too much to the north, and came out in the side avenue from which he and Dixon had reconnoitred on the first evening. He saw on the right a glow in the veranda, which, as we know, was the reflection of the flare in the hall, and he heard a babble of voices. But he heard something more, for away on his left was the sound which Thomas Yarney was soon to hear, the trampling of horses. It was the police at last, and his task was to guide them at once to the critical point of action. Three minutes later, a figure like a scarecrow was admonishing a bewildered sergeant, while his hands plucked feverishly at a horse's bridle. It is time to return to Dixon in his clump of rhododendrons. Tragically aware of his impotence, he listened to the tumult of the diehards, hopeful when it was loud, despairing when there came a moment's lull, while Mrs. Moran, like a Greek chorus, drew loudly upon her store of proverbial philosophy and her memory of scripture texts. Twice he tried to reconnoitre towards the scene of battle, but only blundered into sunken plots and pits in the Dutch garden. Finally he squatted beside Mrs. Moran, lit his pipe, and took a firm hold on his patience. It was not tested for long. Presently he was aware that a change had come over the scene, that the diehards' whistles and shouts were being drowned in another sound, the cries of panicky men. Dobson's bellow was wafted to them. "'Auntie Feemy!' he shouted. "'The innkeeper's getting rattled. Dodd, I believe they're running!' For at that moment, twenty paces on his left, the van of the retreat crashed through the creepers on the garden's edge, and leaped the wall that separated it from the cliffs of the garple foot. The old woman was on her feet. "'God be thanked! Is it the police?' Uh, "'Maybe, maybe no, but they're running.' Another bunch of men raced past, and he heard Dobson's voice. "'I tell you they're broke. Listen, it's horses!' Aye, it's the police, but it was the diehards that did the job. Here, they mustn't escape. Have the police had the sense to send men to the Garplefoot? Mrs. Moran, a figure like an ancient prophetess, with her tartan shawl lashing in the gale, clutched him by the shoulder. Doon to the waterside and stop them. You'll not be beaten by we laddies. On we ye, and I'll follow. There's going to be a judgment on evildoers this nicht. Dixon needed no urging. His heart was hot within him, and the weariness and stiffness had gone from his limbs. He, too, tumbled over the wall, and made for what he thought was the route by which he had originally ascended from the stream. As he ran, he made ridiculous efforts to cry like a warp in the hope of summoning the diehards. One, indeed, he found, Napoleon, who had suffered a grievous pounding in the fountain, and had only escaped by an eel-like agility which at aforetime served him in good stead with the law of his native city. Lucky for Dixon was the meeting— for he had forgotten the road, and would certainly have broken his neck. Led by the diehard, he slid forty feet over screes and boiler-plates, with the gale plucking at him, found a path, lost it, and then tumbled down a raw bank of earth to the flat ground beside the harbour. During all this performance, he has told me, he had no thought of fear, 
nor any clear notion what he meant to do. He just wanted to be in at the finish of the job. Through the narrow entrance the gale blew as through a funnel, and the usually placid waters of the harbour were a mass of angry waves. Two boats had been launched and were plunging furiously, and on one of them a lantern dipped and fell. By its light he could see men holding a further boat by the shore. There was no sign of the police. He reflected that probably they had become tangled in the Garpaldine. The third boat was waiting for someone. Dixon, a new Ajax by the ships, divined who this someone must be and realised his duty. It was the leader, the arch-enemy, the man whose escape must at all costs be stopped. Perhaps he had the princess with him, thus snatching victory from apparent defeat. In any case he must be tackled, and a fierce anxiety gripped his heart. "'I finished the job,' he told himself, and peered up into the darkness of the cliffs, wondering just how he should set about it, for, except in the last few days, he had never engaged in combat with a fellow-creature. "'When he comes, you grip his legs,' he told Napoleon, "'and get him down. He'll have a pistol, and we're done if he's on his feet.' There was a cry from the boats, a shout of guidance, and the light on the water was waved madly. "'They must have good eyesight,' thought Dixon, for he could see nothing. And then suddenly he was aware of steps in front of him, and a shape like a man rising out of the void at his left hand. In the darkness Napoleon missed his tackle, and the full shock came on Dixon. He aimed at what he thought was the enemy's throat, found only an arm, and was shaken off as a mastiff might shake off a toy terrier. He made another clutch, fell, and in falling caught his opponent's leg so that he brought him down. The man was immensely agile, for he was up in a second, and something hot and bright blew into Dixon's face. The pistol bullet had passed through the collar of his faithful waterproof, slightly singeing his neck but it served its purpose, for Dixon paused, gasping, to consider where he had been hit, and before he could resume the chase the last boat had pushed off into deep water. To be shot at from close quarters is always irritating, and the novelty of the experience increased Dixon's natural wrath. He fumed on the shore like a deer-hound when the stag has taken to the sea. So hot was his blood that he would have cheerfully assaulted the whole crew had they been within his reach. Napoleon, who had been incapacitated for speed by having his stomach and bare shanks savagely trampled upon, joined him, and together they watched the bobbing black specks as they crawled out of the estuary into the grey spindrift which marked the harbour mouth. But as he looked, the wrath died out of Dixon's soul, for he saw that the boats had indeed sailed on a desperate venture, and that a pursuer was on their track more potent than his breathless middle age. The tide was on the ebb, and the gale was driving the Atlantic breakers shoreward, and in the jaws of the entrance the two waters met in an unearthly turmoil. Above the noise of the wind came the roar of the flooded garpel and the fret of the harbour, and far beyond all the crashing thunder of the conflict of the harbour mouth. Even in the darkness, against the still faintly grey western sky, the spume could be seen rising like water-spouts. But it was the ear rather than the eye which made certain presage of disaster. No boat could face the challenge of that loud portal. As Dixon struggled against the wind and stared, his heart melted and a great awe fell upon him. He may have wept. It is certain that he prayed. "'Poor souls! Poor souls!' he repeated. "'I doubt the last hour or two has been a poor preparation for eternity.' The tide, next day, 
brought the dead ashore. Among them was a young man, different in dress and appearance from the rest, a young man with a noble head and a finely cut classic face, which was not marred like the others from pounding among the garble rocks. His dark hair was washed back from his brow, and the mouth, which had been hard in life, was now relaxed in the strange innocence of death. Dixon gazed at the body, and observed that there was a slight deformation between the shoulders. "'Poor fellow,' he said, "'that explains a lot. As my father used to say, cripples have a right to be cankered.'" End of chapter 15